Hello, and welcome to my podcast. I'm so glad you decided to join me as the discussion topic for today is a significant one. As always, my name is Leanne Yetzi, and thank you for tuning in to my Women in Crime podcast. The discussion today will be around educating the public on what victim blaming is and how it negatively impacts female victims of rape and sexual assault. I will begin with describing what victimology and victimization is specifically, then I will discuss what victim blaming is, how it is done, and the role and influence the media has in perpetuating victim blaming. The effects and impact of victim blaming and as well as theories related will also be discussed. To make the topic clear, a case study will be done on Brock Turner, the Stanford rapist. I will discuss the feminist perspective on victim blaming and how gender roles play a significant part. And then finally, I will conclude by explaining the ways in which we can end or change victim blaming as to lessen the stigma and harm towards these female victims. Let's get started on discussing victims first. Before we dive into victim blaming, it is important to briefly discuss what victimology is and how it determines who can be a victim. Victimology is the study of the etiology or causes of victimization, its consequences, how the criminal justice system accommodates and assists victims, and how other elements of society, such as the media, deal with crime victims. Victimization is not a random process as it encompasses a host of systemic, environmental, demographic, and personal characteristics. Benjamin Mendelssohn is referred to as the father of victimology, and he created a typology of victimization called Mendelssohn's Categories of Victims. These categories were developed to separate the numerous types of victims based on their responsibility in relation to their own victimization. The categories are the innocent victim, victim with minor guilt, voluntary victim, victim who is more guilty than the offender, victim who is alone guilty, and the imaginary victim. Every category presents some type of guilt upon the victim themselves, which is troublesome. Each victim possesses the power to make choices that can increase or decrease the likelihood of their victimization. There's an issue, though, as the notion of totally innocent victims is problematic because it implies that all other victims bear some degree of responsibility. There's much to consider when it comes to victimization and its relation to the victim's characteristics and personality. To help determine victimization and the typical characteristics of victims, victimization surveys such as the National Crime Victimization Survey was created. Nobody is devoid of the possibility of becoming a victim, and essentially victimization can occur at any place, any time, and completely without warning. Today, victimology is concerned with pitting victims against offenders and ignoring the role of social structure, which is fostering a system that victim blames. So, what is victim blaming in the first place? Victim blaming is the practice whereby the responsibility of the crime is diffused from the offender and blame is shifted to the victim. Often, this blame is directed from those who are closest to the victim, such as family and friends, who believe that the victim should have been thinking ahead. Victim blaming is often associated with the just world hypothesis that claims bad people get what they deserve. By viewing a victim as deserving of the victimization committed against them, it allows society to sit comfortably in the belief that they live in an ordered, fair, and just world. Victim blaming can also lead to secondary victimization, which is when a victim of crime feels traumatized as a result of not only their victimization experience, but also by the official criminal justice system response to their victimization. Secondary victimization can be further exemplified by the use of rape myths when it comes to the practice of victim blaming. Rape myths are something that have existed in society for decades, and they work to devalue the victim's assault in some way, shape, or form. It is described as prejudicial, stereotyped, or false beliefs about rape, rape victims, and rapists. The way rape is constructed, it is riddled with myths and stereotypes that misrepresent what offenders and victims look like. Some examples of rape myth would be be she liked it, 
She asked for it, and he didn't mean to. Female victims are made to feel responsible for their assault when asked what they were wearing, were they drinking, and if they knew the person who assaulted them during their trial. As well, rape or sexual assault trials tend to consistently follow a pattern whereby they blame the victim for their rape, express a disbelief in, in the claims of rape, exonerate the perpetrator, and allude that only certain types of women are raped. When th these trials are highly publicized, it can lead to other victims not wanting to report their assault due to the belief that they will not be taken seriously. The medium plays a significant role when it comes to how society views a victim of rape or sexual assault, especially a female victim. Many advertisements and movies normalize the depiction of women being submissive to men or men having some type of control over women. When it comes to newsprint media, it can be very callous and insensitive when describing the assault of victim and can portray the victim very poorly by insinuating they somehow deserved it or made it happen. Another issue with newsprint media is that it possesses a language of rape which describes rape as an act of pleasure using words like fondled and caressed when describing sexual assault. The media can have the power to influence the criminal justice system as well when professionals such as judges and police officers listen and accept rape victims' assault stories with a grain of salt. They will start to believe and give into the rape myths and language being perpetuated by the media. What then happens is the media can spin the story and the victim becomes on trial for accusing the offender rather than the offender on trial for their crimes. It is important for survivors of rape and sexual assault to share their stories and encourage others to as well, but when the media, society, and the criminal justice system gives into rape myths, it's a challenge for these survivors to speak out. With the theories related to victim blaming, the first theory that will be discussed is Amir's controversial victim precipitation theory. Victim precipitation is defined as the extent to which a victim is responsible for his or her own victimization, which can be problematic when it's used to blame the victim. It describes how victims contribute to their own victimization either actively, such as provoking an offender, or passively through personal characteristics that encourage the offender. These continue and are evident in the society we live in through rape culture, victim blaming, and the portrayal of women and victims in the media. According to his theory, the victim's actions, words, and clothing may go against what the offender considers traditional female behavior and assault her because they believe she had it coming anyways. This is problematic as it places unwarranted responsibility on victims to prevent their own victimization, which would require victims to drastically alter their lives. Therefore, victims must change their lives to avoid victimization, and if they do not, then they are to blame. Amir's theory has been significantly criticized in that it perpetuates and encourages the victim blaming of victims, which is why the use of it should be halted. The second theory that will be discussed in relation to victim blaming is the attribution theory. Attribution theory is similar to Amir's victim precipitation theory in that it relates to the way that individuals allocate or attribute responsibility to individual actors within a scenario. Individuals make internal and external attributions where internal revolves around personal characteristics and external is the environment or situation that triggers a behavior. When it comes to rape, this theory can be applied as victims could therefore be blamed if the internal attribution is utilized, whereas less blame would be attributed if external attribution is utilized as it places more emphasis on the situation rather than the individual. Attribution theory is concerned with the ways victims are perceived within the crime that was committed against them. Each theory clearly uses victim blaming as their main justification as to why female victims are raped and sexually assaulted, which can cause tremendous issues. When I say the name Stanford Rapist, everyone knows who I'm talking about. On the weekend of January 17, 2015, Chanel Miller was visiting her sister at Stanford University where they attended a frat party. 
She ended up consuming too much alcohol and passed out unconscious behind a dumpster. Brock Turner, who was a renowned swimmer at Stanford, found her laying there, and instead of helping her, he decided to rape her. As this was occurring, two graduate students passing by saw it happening and came to Chanel's rescue. This case was extremely publicized by the media as the trial was discussed on every news channel and social media platform. During the trial, the defense lawyer tried to use the notion that the alcohol consumed that night was to blame for the assault and continuously referred to Chanel's college drinking habits when she was a graduate at the time. He also used conversations with her boyfriend to hint at her sexual promiscuity. Turner's lawyer tried to blame the assault on Chanel by using every rape myth and stereotype in the book. Brock pled not guilty but was found guilty of three felony charges that only resulted in a six-month sentence, which he served three months of. He faced up to 14 years in prison but was able to beat the system due to the fact that he was a middle-class white male and was privileged by the judge over Chanel Miller, the victim. Judge Aaron Persky believed that the prison environment would have had a severe impact on Brock, which is why he was handed such a lenient sentence. The rape culture that exists in society, and especially on college campuses, is what allows offenders of this crime to get off easy and provides the victim with little to no justice. Rape culture is defined as a complex of beliefs that encourages male sexual aggression and support violence against women. The trial for the Stanford rapist was clearly an example of the dangers of rape culture and the effects it can have towards the victim. Miller stated that she felt her character was just as much on trial and that her pain was never more valuable than his potential. This culture is what allows victims to be blamed for their assault as they are viewed as weak and deserving of it. Brock Turner truly believes he did nothing wrong, and although he was found guilty, the criminal justice system helped make this belief true through the sentence he received. Rape culture is maintained by the norm of silencing victims of rape, which is exactly what Turner's lawyer and the judge did to Chanel Miller. It took her a long time to finally reveal her identity and to come out and describe the traumatization inflicted towards her. By having Chanel give a truly impactful victim impact statement, it gave hope to other victims from trauma and assault to speak up and talk about victimization. In relation to the feminist perspective, it states that male domination is rooted in patriarchal authority relations, family structures, and patterns of socialization and culture that exist in most societies. Due to our patriarchal society, men feel as though they have a better relationship with the court system and can trust the system to work in their favor when compared to women who do not receive this same treatment. Society is extremely male-dominated and has socialized women into their gender roles as subordinate and not important. Socialization into gender roles may make women more prone to the dangers of sexual assault and also communicates victim-blaming as normative. When gender identity is threatened, such as masculinity or femininity, it is common for men to blame the victim, while women tend to put less blame on the victim. Research has suggested that people with more traditional attitudes are harsher on the victim and more lenient towards the perpetrator than people with feminist attitudes. Since women are viewed as subordinate, it allows the criminal justice system to treat them as unimportant and apply sentences to rapists that tend to not reflect the seriousness of the crime. The issue is that since our society is run by men, female victims of rape or sexual assault will never receive true justice as these male offenders almost always get off easy. As well, our male-dominated society is likely to promote sexist attitudes and behaviors that may facilitate greater risk of sexual assault and victim blaming. It's important that we try to make a society more inclusive of women and less male-dominated so that rape myths, gender stereotypes, and victim-blaming can be removed or resolved. The impact from victim-blaming towards the victim, their family, and society in general is significantly detrimental, which is why it must be eliminated in some way. 
By pushing back on victim blaming, we can make sure that other people are having this conversation and discussing why it should not be done. Many victims do not report their assault, but by providing insights on why victims do not go public immediately after being victimized, it might prevent the attribution of negative motives. The most significant issue with victim blaming is that the offender tends to have little to no accountability for their crime they committed. The first step is to assure that the offender is held accountable for their actions by having a community response through the police, courts, schools, clergy, healthcare providers, and social service agencies. This community response would result in, a, in more responsibility from the offender and an increase of empathy towards the victim. A second suggestion would be to create more prevention programs and policies that would assess and target the main causes of the victimization that occurred. When it comes to the offender, using informal mechanisms of social control could help discourage them from committing crimes and would change their behavior for the better. Ultimately, there needs to be less blame placed on the victim, more conversation revolving around the victim, and a change of attitude from society, the criminal justice system, and the media. Thank you for tuning in to my Women in Crime podcast focused on the victim blaming of female victims. I hope that by listening in today, you leave with a sense of compassion and empathy for the victims who are blamed for contributing to their own victimization in some shape or form. This podcast was meant to educate the public on this systemic issue and hopefully suggest ways in lessening the use of victim blaming within our society, families, workplace, the media, and especially the criminal justice system. The impact of victim blaming is real and extremely damaging for the victim themselves and for future victims when it comes to reporting. Therefore, the practice of victim blaming must be destroyed as soon as possible so that rape and sexual assault victims are able to receive true justice rather than be blamed for what they were wearing. Again, thank you for listening and we'll see you in the next one.